0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. In When Race Meets Class, African Americans Coming of Age in a Small City, published by Rutledge in 2019, Rhonda Levine provides a 15-year ethnography that follows the lives of individual Low income African American youth from the beginning of high school into their early adult years. Levine shows how their interaction and experience with multiple institutions and individuals shape their hopes, fears, aspirations, and worldviews. Levine explores the volatility and constraints underlying their decision making and behaviors. Rhonda Levine is Professor of Sociology Emerita at Colgate University. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Rhonda. Thank you, Zalman. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
1: Ha, huh. well, I have been had been teaching courses on race and ethnicity for well over 20 years, probably a lot longer. Um, And I had finished a book on um, actually German Jewish cattle dealers, where I interviewed um, German Jewish cattle dealers who left Germany um, in 1938. And that book came out and I was looking for a new project. And I really liked interviewing people. And in my course, I'm thinking, well, you know, I've taught on race and class and inequality. And maybe, you know, I was observing my kids. Actually, I have two sons in school. And I noticed that in elementary school, there was really no racial divisions, so to speak, or separation. But something happened in high school that although there was an animosity in their particular schools, there was clearly a separation. And it intrigued me. So that's on the one hand, on a very personal level. In what I was teaching, I was totally um, enthralled by how do we explain test scores differences? Class itself or educational experience did not seem to explain why whites seem to test much better than African-Americans. So I was kind of interested in that. And so this is all in the back of my mind. Um, I was at a football game, actually, and ran into um, a young woman who I had met earlier in, in when she was in um, middle school. And she had just started high school. And I asked her what what it was like in high school, how she was doing. And she was African-American and actually of African descent. She was a Nigerian. And she said, Oh, she said, you know, I I try to stay away from the black kids. They're only gonna get me in trouble. Wow. Like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And and what I thought of is the sociological work that said there were different identities among Black immigrants and immigrant mentality versus African Americans. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe this has, you know, this is kind of interesting. And so I asked her, I said, gee, would you be willing to tell me about your experience? And she said, sure. So that's basically how this book started.
0: Right, right. I see. And uh, speaking of this study, how many people participated in your study?
1: Well, I followed um, a total of 28 um, young people, most from eighth grade into their, into their 30s. Um, there was a, slightly more males than females. Um, and how it evolved, it was word of mouth. Like, do you have a friend that would talk to me? So it's kind of interesting how the sample, if you will, Evolved over time, Um, and at one point, I wanted to make sure that I was getting a lot of people in it. And and at that time, the girls in school, in high school, were much more rambunctious than boys. So I wanted to say, "Okay, I want some of the bad girls," as I as as the kids themselves, in quotes, as they would say. And would they talk to me? And of course, through their networks, they would talk to me. (laughs) <laughs> it was a surprise, right, to me. I mean, and, and I think one question, of course, is how does a middle-aged white woman talk to black high school kids? Um, and that's a very real question. And I I mean I don't know if you want to ask me that now or later.
0: That's it, it, it's funny. It's literally the next question on my list. So, we are in like a mind mold over here in, in, in sync. Yes, I'm very curious about your, you know, as you say you're middle uh uh middle-aged, middle-class, white, Jewish uh, professor. Um, uh, h- how did the students, young, Black, uh, mostly sort of low-income students that you were, you were speaking to, you were interviewing, you were following, how did they react to you? What was that dynamic like?
1: Yeah, it's um, interesting to say the least. And I, I, I need to say I had very special contacts So I had an in with some of the students that knew me well, and also some of their parents. Um, Let me just go back. So 20 years earlier, I had been involved with a legal defense committee um, of a young black guy, actually a community college student at that time, who was attacked by white kids, and then basically was up for murder. He, he killed two white guys. And it was a big legal defense case. And I was one of, I think, three white people on the committee. So I had some people in the African American community in the place that I call Parlington knew me or of me. So, and I think that's very important. So I had trust, if you will, right away um the kids that i that i knew and that i had met which is funny that you said you know a middle-aged white jewish woman because the the first girl who really got me all the contacts i met her at a bar mitzvah party (laughs) Um, when she was in middle school so there was this um kind of i had an interesting relationship to begin with with the kids and that the other thing is that I wasn't really seen as a professor to them. I was just a mother in a weird kind of way. Um, although I was a faculty and I never hid the fact that I was writing a book and I wanted to hear their views, I mean, I was very upfront about it. That I did not teach in the university where Parlington is near. So there was, I was outside of that kind of academic circle. So there was no, issues between town and gown. Um, And and that's important. But I also then, because of work that I did, political work, really, that I did 20 years earlier, I had a presence within both the African-American community, but also even within the high school. So I had access to teachers and coaches who knew me in a little different way. So they were, I mean, in some way, actually, to be blunt about it i was surprised at how open they were <laughs> i mean they, uh, some of the guidance counselors for example gave me test scores that <laughs> i was shocked it's like you really wow these test <laughs> so i had of the cohort that i was really looking at how they were doing on standardized tests in school so that was very interesting. And, and and like I said, the snowball, as we put it like that, how one person I interviewed would then introduce me to another person. Um, and that they all were in, in, which I didn't know it when I started that there was really, they were pretty networked to each other. Um, that it, so that if one person said, Oh, yeah, they're okay. And in fact, I mean, I'll tell you that that at one point, I was interviewing who, the person that I call Izzy in the in the in the book in his living room and the doorbell rang and it was another student and at that point he was I think selling drugs. and so there was this drug you know transaction going on at the door and I'm in the the living room there. <laughs> and, and this other person kind of looked and said, you know, what is, you know, this white lady doing there, you know, like, what is this? And Izzy just responded, oh, she's writing a book on us. (laughs) So it was like, you know, they kind of got a kick out of it in a way saying, why do you find this so interesting? And I said, they said, I guess this isn't very normal. I said, well, some people might say that, you know. So it was, they were, you know, very open. And I think part of it, I I don't think many older white people or white people in general actually ask these black kids so tell me what's it like being black quite frankly i don't think they ever ask them for their viewpoints like and so they were and they they would just talk and and the thing is i mean you could say well are they giving me stories that's the other thing um, but that's, I would that's always
0: a, a question in in, 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 in when you're doing qualitative research. I mean, any research, but certainly when you're doing qualitative research and you're relying on the reporting of the people that you're interviewing or you're or you're studying, they're telling you things. To what extent that the, 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 does what they tell you actually correspond to what's happening in their life? You know, that is a complicated question.
1: Right. And so the question is, how do I verify it? Right. And it's like so. So there's a couple of cases that I know actually how I was able to verify. So in one case, I, um, um, I forget like some of the names that I gave people. So one of one of the students who was quite bright walked in. I mean, this is like what happened in high school. So this is in 10th grade, maybe. And he was telling me the story about how he walked in um, to his advanced American history class. And he walked in and his pants were like below his butt or whatever. And he kind of walks in and the teacher said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'm in this class. And he said, well, bring your card up here. Are you sure? Right. Are you sure you're in this class? And he showed him. And of course he was. And so when the the student was telling me the story about how, why he then dropped AP American History is like how the teacher treated them. So it's like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But then I heard the same story from another student saying, "Oh, and you won't believe what happened to so and so in (laughs) AP American History." And I said, "Really? What? You know?" And they tell me the same story. Or in another case. And a lot of it had to do with Izzy, who was a real character, would tell me something about how he got into trouble with this and that and between jugs and gangs and playing football and, and what happened. And so he tells me this story and I'm thinking, this is just too fantastic. It's like wild. But I have it down. But then in another interview, I'm interviewing the football coach and the coaches tell me the same story. Wow! So, so it's like, you know, cause they were really annoyed and this is what happened. And they found it out from his older brother. And, and I said, Oh, okay. You know, so that there was that kind of triangulation. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they, um, yes, a lot of cross referencing if you will. Um, and not done on purpose. So I'm pretty sure what they were saying was pretty, and it was also pretty raw. Um, And the other thing is I could, because this was over such a long period of time, and I would be interviewing at the time. So if they were in ninth grade, what's it like in ninth grade? But by 11th grade, they would be saying something. And I could say, well, remember in ninth grade, you said X. And they said, oh, you remember that? And I said, yeah. And then they, so that they, they weren't reflecting back on their life, but they were basically telling me it in real time. And I then had the 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 luxury, if you will, of going back in their life so that by, you know, the third or fourth or fifth year, they didn't have to go back and give me background because they knew I knew their background.
0: Right, right. I'm curious, how does um, the, the experience of the um, – of uh, the of the students that you studied, um, how does it relate to the issue of racial stigma and the need
1: for respect? Oh, that's huge. I mean, I would say that was their biggest, biggest issues for them in school. In school, that they are clearly, although I am, I do not think teachers intended it, but they clearly were racially marked. Um, uh, in one case, this one kid who, in fact, was very bright um, and, and has gone on actually as a PhD now in engineering, um, but that's a, he was like a quote unquote success. Um, And he was bright to begin with. But when he went to high school, he went in and one of the teachers kind of gave him a bad time. And he said to me, he said, look, he said, I know that they looked at me as this black kid and thought I was just a screw up. And so they treated me like that, but I was not gonna let them get away with it. But he said he had to like prove himself, right? So he clearly was racially marked, but the other kids, some kids who eventually dropped out, um, you know, one, one girl, for example, said, look, um, I was having problems in math. I couldn't follow the teacher was going too fast. So I asked her for help. And she said, yes. So I went, she said, come after class or after school or whatever it was, the girl went, the teacher didn't show up. So the girl said, well, she's disrespecting me. So the next day, the teacher said, well, why didn't, you know, come? You know, I didn't come yesterday, but come today. And of course, the girl said, sure, sure, and didn't show up. The next day, the teacher said, look, why didn't you come? I was waiting for you. And the girl basically said, hey, you know, you didn't respect my time, why am I going to respect yours? So respect is clearly a huge, huge issue. And I think part of it is, and, and I think we know this as sociologists anyways, that um, how these kids are seen just out walking the streets. I mean, a lot of the the boys would say how um, just walking the street, they notice once they reached a certain age, and especially if they were large, big kids. And most of the boys I interviewed played football. So they were big. Um, they said the women, the white women would pick up their kids. One kid, one guy told me this. So it was funny. He said, I'm walking down the street and this white woman is holding her little kid right by the hand. And I kind of smile at the kid and the woman picks the kid up like I was going to steal the kid. Oh you know? God! They know this. They see this at a very young age they they clearly and in school it's a real problem um when they're racially marked and even if they're the um only if they're in a advanced class and they're the only black kid in the class and then oh let's talk about slavery and they all look at the black kid and they say what am i supposed to like speak for every black person so they clearly feel racially marked without a doubt no matter i mean it's and It's almost like I want to be recognized that I'm black, but don't single me out because I'm black.
0: And then because of, the, they are being singled out and 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 treated differently. There there seems to be this kind of deep uh, um, uh, desire to or need to be respected from on the part of the teachers, on the part of the school, and that if they're not respected, then you, you're saying that some of the students uh, kind of act out in order to to kind of uh, uh, equal the score or something. To, no, to, absolutely. To,
1: they, they totally, I mean, lash out. I mean, one girl, I think I talk about this in the, in the book where she got up late and her mother didn't have a time to do her hair. So she had a, um, a kerchief on her head, right? Like something on her head. Well, because of gangs, you couldn't wear headgear in the high school. Um, so she's walking to English class and the hall monitor said, you know, go in, Carmen, go in the girl's room. You have to take your, your headgear, your, your scarf off. And she said, look at, I didn't have time to do my hair. I can't do that. It would be wild. And they said, doesn't matter. Go do that. I have to go to English class. No, do that. She goes into the, the, the girl's room and she realizes they want to go to English class. So she goes to English class. She comes out of English class. The same monitor said, I told you to take that off. Now go to the principal's office. She goes to the principal's office and um, they said, no, you can't do this. She goes, no, my mother didn't do my hair this morning, blah, blah, blah. Well, what happened? They basically suspended her because she was wearing head and she gave them a lot of grief, right? She said, you gotta be kidding. No, call your mother. She called her mother and her mother's laughing and she's saying, don't laugh at me. Like they're kicking me out They're, you know? So, I mean, those kinds of things that build up, I think over time, they, I mean, and they're real. I mean, those are real things that happen in school. And from, I think the point of view of the teachers, they say, well, they're being disruptive. And yeah, they are. But why are they being disruptive? And I think that's the understanding that's not doesn't register, I think, with a lot of the teachers.
0: Right. And how does the need for respect draw young black men into gang activity and drug dealing?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's interesting because... For them, it's like they'll the look, they'll look around, and this is this one kid, Izzy. And I said to him, and now he had um, a mother and a father who worked. His father worked two jobs. They had a you know a lot of kids in the family. They took other kids in. And I said, Izzy, I don't get it. Like you have two parents that work really hard yet, you know, you're always getting into trouble. You're selling drugs. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're whatever. And I said, why? And he looked at me and he said, look, he said, why should I spend time in a crappy job, have no respect when I just have to deliver X, Y, Z and make so much money? It's so much easier. What do you say to something like that? you know, which, I mean, that opens up, you know, it's like, yeah. And for other kids who have, you know, I mean, they're, it's very chaotic home lives. I mean, these kids, it's a, I mean, what kept most of the boys in school was sports. Um, Without that, I think a lot more would have been lost. And I think that's what happened with a, a good number of the girls that I interviewed because they didn't have sports like some of the boys did. And it was just, um, the street was more attractive. It was more fun. Um, and if they were on the street, they would basically be also treated differently. And so that gets into that issue of respect. And even though if you ask all of them, what do you wanna do five years from now? Oh, I'm all, I'm, we're all going to college. Right. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, why are you doing X, Y, Z?
0: Right. So you saw a, 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 a very strong kind of disconnect between the aspirations that the students talked about in terms of what they want to do in the future and what they were doing in the present and how those two didn't seem to line up so well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was, I would say, across the board every one of them had very, what we would call middle-class values. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to go to school. They all thought school was their ticket to upward mobility. Um, Even though they did not do well in school, they skipped classes. I mean, they were truant more of the time. Um, They ended up dropping out, coming back. I mean, it was, um, it didn't matter. And if you pointed that out to them, you know, like, well, how can you say that? But, you know, what are you doing? Well, but I'm going to get it together. And I'm going to go to law school, right, or something. I mean, this one girl who had been in prison back and forth, because, I mean, their lives are so chaotic, but she was living in the Midwest somewhere, and then came back to the Northeast, was living with a father that she didn't know, but her father house there was a drug bust and she was caught up in it was in prison for a while this is somebody in high school this is an 11th grader and she's telling me all of this and and she though then at the end said but of course I want to go to college and become an architect and I'm thinking okay so I mean yeah the the, the disconnect is they think yeah this happened to me but I'm gonna get it together and get out but it's what it's almost like the the hand that they're given just doesn't get them out now for some let me just say for some if there's that mentor right and for some it was the football coach for the boys um who was great to a point and then other things come in i mean the you know one girl you know they also their their home lives are so chaotic if they're uh, um i have to drop out of school because. My mother's a drug addict and I want to take care of my younger brother. So, you know, those kinds of pressures where, um, you know, and these are not deep poverty kids. These are low income, but if that makes sense, these are just low income African-American kids. It's not where we're not, I mean, it's heavily a poverty district now, um, in terms of overall, Parlington is over 30% officially poor. But they're not, I mean, we're not talking about um, major metropolitan area where pockets of of, of deep, severe poverty. Um, Yet these kids, it's still so difficult.
0: Right, right. And I'm curious, what is social and cultural capital and how do Black peer networks impact these two aspects of the lives of the kids you studied?
1: Uh, okay, so if we look at so, just social capital in terms of their networks, and if we'll just look at networks, um, their, their family networks, their larger networks it's really hard to break away from, right? So um, in one case, I'm interviewing two brothers and somebody calls on the phone and they're talking that a friend of theirs um, was in a fight the night before and was in lockup, was in jail, like county jail, and looking for ways to make bail. So these two brothers who I'm interviewing, right, get off the phone as I'm listening to this, and they said, listen, we're going to have to put this in hold because we need to make some calls. We need to find bail money, you know, to get so-and-so out of jail because he got into a fight somewhere last night on the street, whatever. Now, that in and of itself is something that, When my kids were that age, first of all, if they even got into trouble, what were they going to do? They would call me, Ma, I need money, right? I mean, so that in and of itself puts them in a very different position than their white peers. That's one thing. And and just their um, knowing, I mean, my kids knew from probably from birth that they were going to go to college and knew how to do that. These kids do not have even that kind of cultural capital. So they're dependent on school administrators to tell them like when to take tests, for example, even for going to college. But those authority figures they don't feel comfortable with. So a lot of that and their parents certainly don't feel comfortable going to the school administrators. So coaches for many of the boys serve that. Um, that that role, you know, when when are the PSATs? When do you have to sign up for SATs? Very kind of certain things that's going to get them into places. The other thing is, even for summer jobs, they don't have that kind of networking that's going to put that give them a decent job. Right. So it's not like some father who has a small business will hire his kid to work there for the summer. These kids don't have that access.
0: Right. Right. And and um, for the kids you studied, what is their attachment uh, to their school like and how is their academic performance in general?
1: Yeah, well, that was in, in some ways the, the biggest what, what what accounted for their attachment was basically football in, in or sports, right? And that's what attached them to school. Yet there were such pulls that, that I would think that that should have improved their academic performance. And what I was able to see is that in ninth grade, for example, high hopes, and that was like, you know, coming out of middle school, they were bright. They were going to not do what older siblings did or or something or other, right? By ninth grade. By 10th grade, there's basically a drop. Um, It's real interesting. And by 11th grade, they're almost lost. Now, in in Parlington High School, they had open um, lunch period, which meant kids could leave the school. And what happened was a lot of them left and never came back and so that there was like high rates of absenteeism, um, and that was a real problem. So if they were playing sports, coaches had some leverage over them because you're not going to start if you don't, you know, if you get into trouble or if you don't do well in this test, I'm, you're not going to play for me. So that kept some of them in for a while, let's say, but the, the girls did not fare as well as the boys on that matter. And what happens is that, that the girls also, there was a whole thing with boys, like the boys that I studied, which was kind of an interesting gender dynamic is that the boys, most of the boys were high profile athletes and they wanted to date the white girls at school. Um, the black girls were furious about that. So there, that if I were to say where the racial tensions were, they were among black and white girls. Um, I said to one of the uh, one of the black girls was telling me that how um, if there's a fire drill, she said it's really fun to push the white girls, and I said. What- Oh yeah, she was so funny. She said, oh yeah, there's a fire drill we go out and it's really great to push the white girls. And I said, why do you do that? And they looked at me and they said, they don't push back. Which I thought oh, was wow. interesting. So then I said to them, I said, well, you know, I'm white. Like, you know, I'm white. So what if, if we weren't talking and if you were sitting on, you know, by school and I walked by, what would you do to me? oh, they were great. They said, oh, we would probably totally tear you apart. And I said, really? And they go, yeah, it would be so much fun. We would probably make fun of what you're wearing and whatever. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, because you would feel so uncomfortable. And somehow I think that gave them power. And I think it goes back to their um, really annoyance with black boys who would prefer to date white girls in high school. And the white girls, of course, wanted the football star. So there was this whole other gender thing going on that I think normally gets hidden um, from a lot of ethnographic studies. But they were, they were very, very upfront to me. And I actually did interview some white girl students And I asked them, I said, so you're friendly with these black boys. I said, so if you were in the cafeteria, do you like hang out? What do you do? And they basically told me, well, if the, if my friend is with any of the black girls, we won't even say hello, we'll walk right by that table. And I said, And they said, oh, because we don't want to, you know, get into that. And I said, okay. So that was very interesting in the school. And they were... I mean, in, in this sense, if I go back, the fact that I was so much older really worked like they were they you know, I was sort of like this funny, not quite their grandmother, maybe, maybe in some cases, I probably could have been, but they it was like, a, I was, I, I think I was safe to talk to and i told them that i would let them you know read anything i wrote about them too and so which i did which was also interesting
0: but um. yeah but i'm curious did you speak to the black boys especially the like the football players and ask them why they wanted to date white girls what was the behind their motivation okay what what
1: their what, what would come out of their mouths is that the black girls um taught too much. Um, uh, uh, they weren't, I don't know how to put this, weren't as pliable as the white girls. G- would give us a lot of grief. That's, wow. that, that, was their, that That is their, that's what they would say. They give us a lot of grief. Wow. <laughs> so in other words, the, 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 the black, it sounds
0: like the black uh, girls were sort of toughened up oh, by 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 life and by the 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 racial um marking that you that you you mentioned absolutely. and by all of these you know pressures around them that seems that it made them kind of very um independent and and resilient and maybe that was something or that part of that was something that the black boys didn't find attractive
1: exactly and but what the, the downside to that is that what it did then, it had forced many of the Black girls um, to get involved with Black guys who were no longer in high school, who were more in gangs and were a lot older than them and um, not, <laughs> let, let's put it this way, those relationships looking back at it i would say we're not in the interest of of the girls um like they fell in some ways um they fell into bad habits and so for a lot of them, then dropped out of school, really got involved into drugs, and it was a problem. Um, now, I should say one of the beauties of an ethnographic study is that this, I could see the up and downs in high school, but then what's really interesting is five years out, out of high school and 10 years out of high school. And that then you can see for some of them really got it together. But after, you know, so one girl after having four kids, she realizes and, um, you know, boyfriends or, or fathers of her children that were really not very good, finally said enough is enough, and kind of went back and to community college got a nursing degree and got it together, where if I had stopped this study, I would have said for sure, she's, you know, we've lost her. Like she's gone but you know 10 years later something happened and she got it together and she's working towards something so it's it's um you know it it, you can't predict just those high school years but i'll tell you what happens is that these kids i like to say they're adultified much earlier right so that they have to become they they deal with adult issues as teenagers, but then in some ways they don't become adults, if that matters, until much later. So there's a it, it's different than if I were to say they're white middle class counterparts. You know, they stay kids longer, but also become adults earlier, right?
0: Right, that right, and. Sense. And you mentioned about oppositional behavior. How does oppositional behavior among black boys and girls develop and change over time?
1: Yeah. Um, And I think this goes back to the respect, right? So it's not now, none of these, none of the kids that I interviewed early on ever said I'm not going to do well because that's being white. I want to say that at the beginning, none of them ever said, I'm not going to do well, be-, like that, that opposition isn't because I don't, excuse me, want to be seen as being white. All right. It was, I want to be respected and I'm going to, you know, I, I, I um, I'm not going to let this teacher get away with it. Like they're putting me down. They're disrespecting. I heard that. That came up so much. They're disrespecting me, disrespecting. Um, And they, you know, I mean, with these kids, sometimes I'd come back from an interview and I'd be exhausted of just what they dealt with and wondered, like, why aren't they even more oppositional to whatever they are? Like, why are, you know, why aren't they fighting more, um, and and most of it was really among themselves. I mean, I I was at a lot of high school when they were during high school years and high school um, the sporting events, so I could observe from a distance, right, how they interacted with white kids, black kids. Um, and for a lot of the, as, a, as the girls would say, it's a he say, she say, you know, and they would get like, why'd you say that? And why'd you call me this? And they would go back and forth. Um, in the schools, though, it was definitely um, opposition to teachers. Um, they really resented being treated poorly. Right. Well, which is, I mean, like understandable. <laughs> Who wants to be treated poorly? Right. Right? I mean, and, and they would get, um, if somebody would make it crack a joke and they, they were very, well, let me go back. They were very, um, in tune to how a white kid would be treated differently than them. And that was, and, and, and just the, the school itself. I mean, the, what the black kid, the ex, expulsion, um, was so much higher among black kids than white kids. I mean uh, uh, actually uh, somebody I know said, you know there were these white kids who went out again during lunch and were somewhere and the cops pulled the car over and there was all this marijuana in the car right And so what did the cops do? They took the kids back to the back to the high school and called their parents. Right. And that was it. End of story. And the same thing, though, if that happened with black kids, I will tell you, they would be in a paddy wagon and be going down to the police station. This this would not be going back to school. And that and the kids witnessed that over and over and over again. And white kids at school knew that, too. So it, this was not, you know, and, and so, yeah, I mean, the like I said, I'm surprised there wasn't more opposition. Um to that. And, and as what's interesting too, is at the time of the bulk of the study, there was maybe 24% African-American in the school. But if you asked anybody in the school, how many, what's the percentage, depending on what door they went out, right. They would say, Oh, 80% black, you know, so like the, the whole image um, changes and, and they, know that. Kids know that. Right.
0: And I'm curious, you you know, you talk about some of the the black students that you studied were kind of high achievers that were, you know, really focused on their studies. I'm wondering, um, did these black students, these high achievers, uh, pay a social price for their achievements? Did they stick out because of their academic achievements? And were they, was there a social penalty because of that?
1: What's interesting is the the kids that I interviewed the answers no, and the the one person that I told you that eventually got a Ph.D. Um, went on and and he he was great he was a high achiever, but he also hung out with everybody. So and the the kids themselves were proud of them. That was the other thing in this particular group. It's like yeah, you know, like so-and-so does really well like he's gonna do okay um somebody else who said they they this one guy who said he couldn't he he couldn't play go out for basketball because he had to work and he had to like help support his mother at that time and he said he was worked a lot after school but he was still friends like they were like how they manage those networks um was quite interesting to me like they were not um so that whole business about acting white um now i I mean these are the these high achievers and and one guy who went on to college it was a kind of a football star football scholarship um then eventually got an mba he's also doing quite well um but nobody ever thought he was acting white, and there there was not in this group. but but, let me say, in these particular students, they they were able to balance that. It wasn't like what the girl who I first talked to who said, "I'm not going to hang out with any black kids they're going to bring me down." Now, that totally changed by the time she was a sophomore, I should say. and that that just didn't happen. But, there was you know that that kind of view just did not just wasn't present among these kids which was surprising right and um, so you studied um,
0: especially the the um, sport um, the girls and boys who were involved in sports and the boys tended to be involved in basketball and and oh, and wow. football mm-hmm. and I'm curious what role did race if any play in um in the the sports um, you know aspect of school
1: yeah what, what's interesting to me is that for the for the boys basketball and football were very high profile sports so they were also kind of stars right so, so many many of them high profile stars um, on the team itself, what was interesting is that, during season and this was particularly for the girls who played basketball during season they would the team the white kids and the black kids would be fine but off season they didn't even talk to each other the black and white kids which was wow. what I thought was like just fascinating you know especially for that that happened for the girls in particular the boys I'm going to say that the majority of basketball and football players were probably African American, at least the stars were. But during the, the kids that were outliers, who didn't play a whole lot, but were on the team, the, they were fine on the court or on the field, but that did not carry off the court or off the field. And I think that's probably goes even if we look at college sports, Um, that the, I know when I was teaching that I think the football field may have been the most integrated space on campus. Um, but once you left that field, it was total kind of black and white. Right. Wow. (laughs) And, um, how does the
0: engagement from school on the part of the black girls impact,
1: um, their, their romantic decisions. Nah, yeah, not good, not good. Um, in the sense of that they're, they're, they're basically forced to look elsewhere outside of high school for partners. Um, and that tends to be older um, males. A lot more, as I think about it, more of the girls were involved with boys who were part of gangs, for example, and they would talk about this, like really open, and they would say, well, in 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 Parlington, I should say, it wasn't like a major metropolitan area where the bloods did not speak to the well the, the, the blood Crips. the Crips, right? The Crips and the Bloods, right? And so one was blue and one was red. And so they would talk about how somebody's boyfriend could have been a Crip but her brother was a blood. And the real problem, if you were dating a crip or a blood, then you had to wear all that color. That was their major concern. But they knew this. I mean, and and um, in some ways, I think when I was doing the actual interviewing when they were in high school, I was probably pretty naive about the extent of... Um, it, the extent of the Crips and the bloods and what they were probably involved with um so and i would do most of the interviews in their homes like on their spate in their space so um in and, and one time there were these guys that were pr- I, i'm pretty sure and re- when i looked over my my field notes because i would write up how the interview went and what i observed is that these guys that were hanging out there we clearly in the Crips or bloods. And I somehow didn't feel like that was a problem. I don't know. I, I guess I wasn't. Maybe I should have been worried about it. But I, 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 I'm surprised. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't ask them if I could interview them. But anyways, I didn't. <laughs> right wow and uh, you um you found
0: that that some of the black girls became what you call the a, a, a boundary keepers yes. for racial uh, uh, distinctions at the school yes. uh, how did this manifest
1: well they uh, like on the one hand like pushing the white girls away literally physically pushing them away but at a basketball game for example like where people sat they would actually throw things if white kids got too close to where the black kids were sitting that's one thing it was like really interesting and there were clear spaces in the um cafeteria for example that were black spaces they were clear and they would the girls would make sure that that was known as a black space um And, and so they were that in in a way they were really put, I mean, physically during a fire drill, they could push the white girls, but really wanted the white girls at a distance. And that, um, and, and when I, when I went back and started actually coding and realized like how much the relationship between the black boys and white girls really affected black girls identity. Um, so I don't know if that yeah. quite answers your question,
0: right? No, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, um, to go back to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about how, because, um, because your study was such a, uh, you know, took place over such a long period of time, you're able to see a real development on the part of um, the the people you were studying. So people sometimes ended up in very different places than you one might have anticipated based on what they were doing in high school. You know, they were able to really turn their life around and end up in a much more kind of positive place. Um, I'm curious, do you have a sense now of what are some of the factors that really determined w- what people's long-term outcome would be?
1: That's a toughie because in, in some ways the the, the most obvious is also the most um idiosyncratic in some ways um it's like that one person who had an impact on someone yeah um uh that was key um yet not in all cases right so why did for example the football coach have a really big impact on one of the kids that went on to get an MBA yet on one of that kids close friends just sort of was in and out of rehab still in and out of rehab um for for some um some stability in marriage later on and kids that did it for some much later than I would have thought i mean later about that that was in some ways um it's a it's a toughie it's and and some you know are you in with the wrong crowd i mean it seems so individualistic that becomes like for me i want to look at more the macro so i'm looking like okay what's the big picture here all right you know it's like well if they did X, Y, Z. So some of uh, some of the boys, for example, went into the military eventually, and you would think, okay, was that a good thing or not a good thing? Well, in some cases, maybe, okay, it was better than where they were going to be. But and then in another case, you know, came back, PTSD really kind of messed up. So I don't
0: know, was that good? Right. Well, it wasn't a clear pattern. So given how uh, individualistic, idiosyncratic, the different uh, students' life trajectories um, uh, turned out to be. Um, are there any policy recommendations that come out of your research?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it, you know. Having said it was idiosyncratic, there are clearly patterns, right? I mean, there's school. There's what happens in the school. What happens in family. What happens in community. right? So like big institutional settings, what are these kids' lives? I think in schools, for sure, there needs to be a whole lot of changes. (laughs) Um, uh, Mostly, I would say curriculum changes. Um, What's what's interesting that as the schools like to have kids more attached, but also to read things that make sense in their lives. And that's that's where... um, I think a real big problem in Parlington has been that um, what makes sense, what's this kid going to relate to that why do they want to even stay in school and what are the options, right? So that's that's one thing. And, of course, I mean, basic job market, right? Um, Jobs, what's their availability, paying jobs, um, housing now. I mean, these kids their lives were really chaotic is all i can say and there wasn't um you know what they couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of them so they they're they're kind of like treading water in some ways so i think that kind of stuff um um, in, there was a big, what, since I finished the study, there's a real big problem with, um, with, with drugs, with prescription drugs. So there's, um, you know, kids just become addicts. Um, heroin is just back big time. Um, when I was early on in this study, it was crack cocaine early on remnants. Now it's, it was, um, oxycodone or whatever it is, oxycontin and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there, there needs to be, um, I think that kind of stuff also in Parlington, the problem with the criminal justice system, quite frankly, I mean, what, um, these kids, you know, from school, it's like almost like, well, I don't see people who play by the rules get screwed anyway. So why play by the rules? Right. So those would be the big, big picture. Right.
0: Right. Right. I hear you. Um, I'm curious, are there um, um, uh, any particular messages that you hope readers take away from your book?
1: <sighs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think the big mes- message also is that, unfortunately, racism is well and alive and it really does real damage to real people. Um, and I think early on, I mean you, you asked the question about being racially marked or stigmatized. Um, that's huge. Um, and it just can't be denied, right? I mean it's we gotta get away from this where' so many teachers, oh, I just see students out there. nah, you know, colorblind racism is is racism. sorry, right? And, and I think we need more conversations. Um, about honestly what that means even and how we get beyond it. Um, I think today with such a divided country and everybody talking, oh, you can't say that because of cancel culture. If somebody says cancel culture, I scream. It's like, no, we need to talk about this. And what does that mean for somebody to be racially marked? How does that have, um, how does that do damage in ways that we don't even know? And I'm just um, thankful that these kids shared their stories with me. I think, I think there's a lot in their voices that we can learn from.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Th- that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.